Today's show is brought to you by HelloFresh. For $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit HelloFresh.com and enter the code PROBABLY30. Probably science. Hello and welcome to Probably Science. My name's Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kirshen. We, we don't have any dogs this week. None, nope. of, none of the guests need to be locked into a bedroom. <laughs> Sometimes I do. <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> that is the voice of our guest. Someone I met a while back. Very funny. Actor, improviser, writer, all-around good person. Zabeth Russell, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Sorry, yeah, there is no uh, overactive Chihuahua mix running around right now. But um, How did the other recording go? It was... Uh, not to always be cross-promoting twinsies, but um, we, we were doing a dog-themed twin movie pairing of K9 and Turner and Hooch so we thought we'd have Renee Colvert on who's a host of Can I Pet Your Dog right and have her bring her dog over so it was it was dog overload it was <laughs> insanity having this because Renee's and, dog as well is not a calm dog yeah it's a pitbull collie or pitbull like Australian shepherd mix and and it's just a few months old so it's just bonkers with energy yeah it was nearly impossible but we replicated scenes from Turner and Hooch inadvertently because like the dog at one point jumped over the table and knocked the recording gear on the floor and oh so, but not one of like the really sad scenes from <laughs> yeah. oh no yeah we put it About down that. yeah the yeah. dog got shot but I, I'd forgotten how sad you, you've seen Turner Hooch yeah, oh, yeah I've seen I both seen of them one. it's a heartbreaking movie the end I mean the very end is it's got a little Spo- should we put a spoiler alert in there Okay, let's just assume, well, if it's a dog movie and people are saying it's sad, we've already spoiled what's going to happen, right? I mean... I think it's rare to see a dog movie that doesn't have some sort of, you know, at least a threat of very sadness, like very sad things that happen to the dog. And most dog movies end with like someone learning a life lesson when the dog dies. Right, right. But at least, okay, spoiler alert, yeah, Hooch dies, but Hooch has, there's a puppy at the end at least, in the very final shot, remember? Yes, there's there's like a a new Hooch. Of of a new generation. Hooch 2.0. But... I also think that you don't really have to give a spoiler alert if the movie's like from <laughs> the late 80s, yeah. maybe. Yeah. yeah, the movie is 30 years old, Yeah, which is like technically 210 years old in oh, dog years. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, we did research on the dogs that starred in both movies to see how long they all lived. And there's so much controversy about whether... Uh, what, like what the name of the canine dog was. Like there's three different theories about which dog it was. And there are different like according to imdb the dog that played hooch lived to be 14 but that breed's average age is five so there's like yeah, something weird about that Ooh, and then in the, I tom hanks, that. And in the tom hanks ama he was asked what happened to hooch he said all four dogs who played hooch have gone to doggy heaven <gasps> so like wait there wasn't one so beasley the dog on imdb is a lie this this thing goes it goes deep there's lots Whoa. <laughs> there's a lot to uncover yeah. there also it was tom hanks's idea to kill off the dog they wow. shot two endings and he was like, no, this is going to be like old yeller, classic movie thing. You got to kill the dog. So you could blame him. But that's that. in his writer anyway for all films he does. <laughs> he can kill a dog. A dog dies yeah. on screen or off. Even if there's a dog, in, a dog dies somewhere <laughs> during one of Tom Hanks's movies. That horrifying bit at the end of Big where he goes back into, it, it, back in, into the fairground and he goes like, I wish to be big again. Uh, and also for a dog to die. Yeah, I'm sure at some point in Saving Private Ryan, a, a military, an army dog dies, right? Yeah, of How course. Could, there must have been dogs at Omaha Beach. Probably more than one. Yeah, splash, drowned dog. Sure, mm-hmm. uh, a mer dog. <laughs> half fish, half dog that also tries to fall in love with Tom Hanks, but is brutally rejected and then drowns himself. 
Would it still be it, anything that's submerged? Something has to be the non-fish on top. You never have fish on top and something else on bottom, right? Yeah, I've never, I, I've never seen that. I think that's because humans don't think that that's very sexy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the whole point of mer people is that humans somehow think they're vaguely sexy. I mean, like the bottom half of someone can be sexy. <laughs> there's, there's things that are sexy yeah. on both halves of a person. Okay, but but the bottom half of a person is not sexy on its own. Do you know a what I severed, mean? A severed, a black dahlia bottom half is yeah. not the sexiest. <laughs> To me. Not that a severed top half would be sexy either. But <laughs> you, can, had you can look at that and be like, that person would be sexy were they whole. But you can't just look at the bottom half of a person and I say that. I think you can to an extent. You can look at, you know, I had some good hips. I bet those good hips go with a kindly face. <laughs> That's how it usually works. Good hips and a kindly face. That's, the Shakira song was about the evidence of the Black Dahlia scene, right? Yeah. Those hips didn't lie. Yeah. No, they certainly didn't. No. So Beth, we got way off topic very early on. Sorry about that. Not at all. I'm excited about more dogs. <laughs> <laughs> if what? we have any artistically inclined listeners, please feel free to draw us a Murdoch. But <laughs> the Murdoch that's fish on top. Fish on top, doggy on bottom. Please. Maybe all four. I like kind of a centaur fish. Like it's t- all four dog legs, but yeah. fish head. And place Murdoch with the other of the the rest of the A team. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like planes. Um. So, uh. We'd like to ask our guests this before we get into the story. Okay. What, apart from Murdoch's, is your background in, or interest in science? Oh, my background in science. Um, let's see. I did take science classes in high school, like many American teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, I am interested in science stories. I wouldn't call myself a scientific expert or even someone who can always converse intelligently <laughs> about science. Nor would we. I have opinions. They're probably wrong. Um, but that is... Oh, you know what? When I lived in Boston, I did work at a biotech company. Oh, um, wait. <laughs> How do you go from zero to that? That's... And I'm a professor at Caltech. <laughs> yeah. I guess I was... Yeah, but those are like... The, those things are negligible. I don't I don't really... Those are just things that happen to me. <laughs> just paying the bills. Yeah, just paying the bills. Um, what was the biotech company? What so, did you I worked in a division of the biotech company. They handled clinical trials. So I was in charge of hiring people. to. Do, so it wasn't my my job wasn't yeah. that scientific. I hired people to do data entry for all these clinical trials so that then the data could be cleaned and analyzed and sent back to pharmaceutical companies. And it's just as boring as it sounds. And sometimes I snuck out and watched movies. Anything interesting come out of those trials that you know? Like, was it... Uh any famous drugs? I don't know. Viagra? Uh, you know, we did we did a couple of breast implant trials. There were also cancer drugs. Um, th- I didn't there, I wasn't privy to any Viagra type studies. Um, but I think we did some uh, we did some work on a diabetes drug. Oh, okay. Um, however, I will say this. Uh, I they when you do the clinical trial, you aren't given the name of the drug usually because they don't name it until it's oh, ready right, to right. go into production. So I could have worked on something groundbreaking or terrible, and I don't even know it. Oh. How do trials work? I guess I never thought about breast implants having clinical trials, but like, are those controlled experiments? Like, is there a control group that gets like uh, sugar pill boobs? Or like, what's <laughs> the what, yeah, what, what's a placebo? Oh, that boob? would be so sad if you got a placebo boob. <laughs> yeah. Just, it's just like, real, it's they're... just popcorn and after a while it dissolves <laughs> in your body and you're like, oh, those looked great for a minute. It's um, also a double blind trial, so you're not allowed to touch them. <laughs> oh, no. you, you can't touch them at all and they can never be covered with cloth, so you really just have to stay inside. Um, I, uh, you know, 
for that, there's not really a it's not really a double blind thing. They just they just, just use the them. implants on people and then yeah. they they note the results. Um, you know, whether there's pain or yeah. I learned a lot about stuff like capsular contracture and things like that. That sounds very sciencey. That's kind of sciencey. What it is just capsular means, contracture? Means that your breast implants give you giant scars in your boobs oh. and they become encapsulated, which means there's a lot of scar tissue in there and that's how people's boobs become sort of misshapen and hard and maybe there's one up here and one down oh. here. And, um, you know, the fun stuff that happens to real housewives. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember when that was a big thing when people thought that I always say past tense because maybe it's been discredited. But like when there were all the lawsuits happening because people said that silicone, was it silicone implants that were the ones that people thought were giving them all kinds of diseases? And then has that been... Uh, Matt, Actually, I think I they moved um, away from saline, right? Like now, most of them are silicone, and they see, used to I th- be saline. I thought I thought they started off as silicone, and then people thought those were giving problems, so they moved to saline. And I thought now they've gone back because those did not actually cause problems. Or maybe yes. it was non-medical grade, and like there were problems with the silicone that was being used not being sufficiently high grade and was leaching oh, okay. into the bloodstream. I don't I know. We something, don't know something about a reversal that uh, yeah, I shouldn't get into. All right, if I don't listeners. Yes, this is exactly the kind of thing that someone. We have listeners who are working in the medical field. And there's, or have... Well, yes. <laughs> the, there's nearly always someone listening to the show who has some level of expertise in some of the stuff we are flapping around. Or has fake boobs. Yeah. 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 If you know the answer to this question, let us know. Should we get into some non-boob-related science stories? No, oh, let's not. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> I mean, we can keep it in... We can keep it blue if we want. We do have... Uh, an animal story that uh, that's very on brand for us. Do you want to keep it a bit saucy? <laughs> we start with that. <laughs> I like to start with the spicy ones. Uh, we got an email as we have for many years from uh, Justin Broad with a story about how scientists taught monkeys the concept of money, and not long after, the first prostitute monkey appeared. <laughs> um, I don't know how we didn't cover this story earlier. It sounds like I I, I, I remember have... the story coming up. And I don't know how we didn't cover it, but maybe we did cover it. But in six years it. of doing this podcast, we have repeated ourselves before. So, I figure uh, you were about let's cover it again. Don't you think you'd remember talking about a monkey that's, prostitute? That's why I asked Matt before. I'm like, did we? I remember sounds, reading the story. Let's see. Well, if it is, let's see, because this story itself came out in October, so I don't think we covered it in the last few months. But it also relates to it is the oldest monkey profession. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Uh, but the, the actual study was from 2005. Hmm. I don't know, Matt. Your call. Do we get into this and risk repeating ourselves from something we did years ago? Ah. Uh, well, let's let's. Is this a shortish story? Let's read the story. <laughs> okay. Um, so, in 2005, an economist psychologist duo from Yale managed to teach seven capuchin monkeys how to use money, and uh, it goes where you think it goes. Um, so, the capuchin has a small brain. It's pretty much focused on food and sex, because says Keith Chen, a Yale economist, who, along with Laurie Santos, a psychologist, are the two researchers who have made the study. Um, you should really think of a capuchin as a bottomless stomach of want. You can feed them marshmallows all day, they'll throw up, and then come back for more. <laughs> It's exactly these selfish desires that they tried to exploit and experiment with great success after teaching capuchins to buy grapes, apples, and jello. The economists wanted to study the incentives that motivated specimens to behave in a way, while the psychologist analyzed the behavior itself. Uh, Chen's monkey correlations to human economics attempts to go from further back when he was a Harvard graduate and additionally shows some more interesting facts. This is weirdly worded. Is this, like, translated from something? <laughs> um... 
So he worked there with Mark Hauser, a psychologist on a project which studied altruism behaviors in monkeys. They chose cotton top tamarinds for this. That's like a monkey that's wearing like a crop top. Okay. Look at that sexy. Hey. Okay. Uh, at first, they put two monkeys in different cages, each with a lever. When the lever was pulled, the neighboring monkey would receive food. If not altruism, it was still a form of cooperation, which was put to the test. The typical tamarind pulled the lever about 40% of the time to help out his other buddy. Um, so let's see. The most interesting part comes about at the time when researchers paced the game a bit harder. This is the weirdest word. I, I almost want to bail on this because the article is so bizarre and it's sounded like it's sent through Google Translate and back or something. Or is it just that the idea of a monkey prostitute makes you uncomfortable? <laughs> could it, it, it could be. You can just say it why if can't that's it be what both? it is. Let's skip ahead of this what, altruism what, what, what are your issues with monkey sex work, Andy? <laughs> is it like you're I don't want to some... sl- monkey slut shame here. Like if monkeys <laughs> want to do what they want to do. Okay, let's skip the altruism part. So um, when they started in, let's see. Da, 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 da. When Chen and Santos first started their study, they didn't have a particular goal in mind. It was just as simple as giving a monkey a dollar and see what would happen, <laughs> which is exactly the case. Instead I love of the, that children's book, Give a Monkey a Dollar. Give a Monkey a Dollar, yeah. It doesn't end the same way, though. <laughs> Uh, instead of the dollar, however, a silver disc with a hole in its center was employed as a means of currency for the cappuccines. It took several months of repetition for the cappuccines to learn they could exchange such a token for fruit. After they, under- after they understood this, each monkey was given 12 tokens to decide to spend it uh, in her best interest on food valued at different prices. Um, researchers observed the monkeys could very well budget. This wording is so bizarre. They could very well budget. <laughs> what is this website? Oh, man. I, Wait, do you think that this is like Russian fake news? Is that what you're implying? I, it's just something. This is just setting off a whole bunch of alarms. Do you think this was written by the monkeys? <laughs> yes, <laughs> too. They could very well budget. They can also very well write an article I, about monkey press. This is on ZMEScience.com, which I know we've done stories on before. Let me just look at where this is based and see if there's something suspicious about this site. Um... It's a Romanian site. Okay. Can we continue, Matt? <laughs> it is. Like, I, I see your problem because I was scanning ahead and it is, it is just curious. All the information is there. It's just every sentence is just curiously phrased. Um, Maybe if we do it in an accent and then you'd understand and then it would carry more weight as well. Researchers observed the monkeys could very well budget. Researchers <laughs> then changed the market and put jello at lower price to see if monkeys would buy fewer grapes and more jello. It's honestly I'm a better story this, with this I'm accent. I'm cutting this out. There's no way I'm leaving this. They acted exactly like the current laws of economic dictate for humans as well uh, Romanians are vampires right yes okay that's uh, all of them they then taught them how to gamble and saw they made the same irrational decisions a human gambler would make as well <laughs> the data generated by the cappuccine monkeys Chen says make them statistically indistinguishable from most stock market investors now keeping that same accent you should count the sex tokens <laughs> One sex token, <laughs> two sex tokens. Ah, ah. That oh. part was in the children's God. book. Okay, let's just get to the fucking prostitution. Jesus, that's what they all um, say, yeah. right? So Heard that before from Andy. Yeah. <laughs> um, wait, wait, where is the actual? Damn, I think we just scrapped this whole thing because <laughs> I don't even see the part where it talks about them exchanging it for sex. <laughs> Well, it's a Romanian article, so that's the least interesting part of it. They're just like, 
No. We are interested in altruism, and this is a sideline is the prostitution. <laughs> um, wait, okay, so the monkeys were given tokens one at a time by inserting them in, in a separate chamber from that of their living quarters, but on one occasion everything sprung into chaos when a capuchin tried to make a run for it with a tray filled with tokens and ended up back with all the other monkeys. That was a tough time for researchers. What does this have to do with prostitution? It's, CME science. It's in the next paragraph. You? Okay, it's, something else And by else the way, happened. it is just one just sentence. Just one sentence. Just one yeah. sentence. It goes, wow. something else then happened. It's almost like we should do more prep on these stories before we get into them. Um, the idea that you can use money as a form of currency to exchange for goods and services as not just food. One of the researchers during the chaos event observed how one of the monkeys exchanged money to another for sex. After the act was over... The monkey, which was paid immediately, used it to buy a grape. <laughs> That's it. That's the full extent of what the... It was one instance of monkey... But still. I'm going to leave this to you whether we cut out everything we just did in the last five minutes. <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think we should leave it in there for, in, in okay. the interest of completion. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, there's a lot of valuable info in that. I think it was early enough in the episode that hopefully people will power through this and not bail on it at that point. It does peel back the curtain a little too much about our... Uh... About, like, I, I hadn't read this article. Andy clearly hadn't either. <laughs> I was drawn in by the headline. I uh, thought it was going to go somewhere fun, and maybe it did. Maybe it was fun for listeners to see us find out that this Romanian site is not well written. <laughs> I'm just not as mad at this story as you guys are, but I do think it's interesting that they make the headline about prostitution when they viewed one instance of a monkey using sex to get a token and then buying a grape. Um, I like that that was the takeaway on the yeah. science website. Yeah. Yep. That's how they title the article because they know that's what people are going to be interested in. Well, but, but do they buy sex? That's all I want to know. And they about were 100% right about it. Yeah. Of, have you ha- has anybody here had uh, grape-worthy sex? Grape worthy? Wait, I've had, do you mean like the kind where you immediately go and buy a grape? Or the kind... Or you're like, that was worth at least a grape. Well, I guess most sex is worth at least a grape. Well, how about that one? That was worth at most a grape. I think grapes are valued differently for humans. <laughs> so maybe I would hope that it's at least worthy of a grape. At least one grape. Um, maybe I should flip this. Have you, ha- have you ever had a grape that was as good as sex? <laughs> Um, you know, I, know, I, I do possibly. Know. Um, it depends on. I, yeah, you know what? I like would say that I've had I've had grapes that I, if you know, measuring them against some sexual experience, I would say to myself, I would have rather had the grape. <laughs> With that, the behind door number, yeah, yeah. I I also now know if you if you're in a grocery store and you see someone buying one single grape, you're like, he's about to fuck a monkey. Oh yeah, or he did fuck a monkey and got a token. <laughs> That's what I would assume. I'm sorry, sir. You can't buy you can't buy a single grape, nor can you pay with whatever that piece of metal with a hole in the metal disc. Yeah, the story also mentioned, uh, sir. Have you been fucking monkeys? <laughs> That's a little personal. I'll go spend my sex token somewhere else. Thank you. They'll take it at Trader Joe's. <laughs> There's so much more in this article that's not prostitution related that's kind of interesting, but again, the headline had to be that, because they also tried cutting uh, circular slices of cucumbers instead of the coins and handing them handing those to the monkeys as money, and uh, one of the monkeys took a slice, chewed on it a bit, then immediately went to one of the researchers to see if she could buy something better with it. So huh. they also thought cucumbers were money if they were that shape. Um, I thought the part was interesting about how they would only be altruistic 40% of the time. They would only help each other out 40% of the time. I wonder why that is. They yeah. don't like each other that much. They like or each other kind of. Or did they not kinda. even get that they were, did they not get the correlation between pulling the lever and helping the 
And those were different monkeys. Those were tamarins, not cappuccines. Mm, the crop top monkeys. Man, this story. Oh, what a great way to start things off. <laughs> Thank you, Justin. I liked it. Okay. I like a good monkey prostitute story. This wasn't a good one, but it was it was a monkey prostitute story. It had the offering. It had the it had the potential. Yeah. It didn't live up to that potential. <laughs> there is a there's a story that's. Did you hear about this? I, I'm talking about. Um, I it maybe do worms in people's eyes. Oh, oh yeah! Did you couple hear about of, this? A couple of people sent this in. A photo, but I didn't read the article because I didn't want to feel nauseous. Pizza so, J. Rudy was one of the we people. Not? No, go for it. <laughs> Honestly, I just didn't want to see any more of the photograph of a worm coming out of an eye. But uh, I'm happy to talk about worms and eyes. Okay, even if it's just half an inch long. I mean, what is the difference between a worm that's an inch long in your eye and a worm that's half an inch long? I mean, if, if there was an earthworm in my eye, that would be, I don't think I'd be that uh, horrified by this I think size. you would notice a, an earthworm in your eye immediately. Yeah. There's no, there's, there's no space for an earthworm to go unchecked in your eye for a while. I mean, a half inch worm can live there for a minute and you're like, oh God, is this my contact? Well, I don't know. And then someone's like, oh no, sorry, it's a worm. And if that happened 14 times, that might be bad too, right? I think so. Okay. Did this person have a worm in their eye 14 different times? Uh, well, let's go to CNN. Imagine looking in your irritated eye for a pesky eyelash only to pull out a translucent wiggling worm nearly half an inch long. I looked at it and it was moving, recalled 28-year-old Abby Beckley of Grants Pass, Oregon. And then it died within about five seconds. Now imagine doing that not once, but 14 times. Oh my God. That's what Beckley endured over a three-week period in August 2016. Her story, published Monday as a case report by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, is a historic one. This is only the 11th time, is it historic then? 11th time a person has been infected by eye worms in North America, explained lead author Richard Bradbury, who is the team lead for the CDC's Parasite Diagnostics and Biology Laboratory. But what was really exciting is that this is a new species that has never infected people before. It's a cattle worm that somehow jumped into a human. That Again, is exciting. exciting. Yeah, Are you ex- excited about that? primary word that comes to mind is exciting. Um, so uh, growing up on a ranch in Brookings, Oregon, surrounded by cattle and horses, Beckley loved the outdoors. She also has a burning desire to travel. So in July 2016, she jumped at a chance to combine the two by working on a commercial salmon fishing boat in Craig, Alaska. Uh, it was only a couple weeks into the job that the symptoms started. My left eye just got really irritated and red, and my eyelid was droopy, Beckley remembered. I was getting migraines, too, and I was like, what's going on? She'd been suffering for five days when the ship finally returned to port. Becky found a good mirror and looked closely into her eye, never expecting what she would find. I'm sorry, Isabel. A good mirror, as yeah. opposed to all the all shitty mirrors, mirrors on the fishing boat. Yeah, we, we don't like to afford. see ourselves yeah. on the fishing boat. Uh, I pulled the bottom of my eye and noticed that my skin looked weird. The only, the only reflection there is the sea when it's at its calmest. <laughs> You just can't get your face close enough to the the calm waters of the sea. <laughs> is that why pirates have beards? It's not. It's not. A, it's not an aesthetic choice. It's just like lack you can't of shave. Yeah, you can't can't sh- shave try shaving with no mirrors no on a moving surface. Yeah. Now try shaving with fourteen sense. worms in your eye. Oh yeah. god, it's not so great. And also using a cutlass. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe it was easy. She could just pull the thing out too. So, so wait, she just pulled the bottom of her eye down and saw some worms just like wriggling around in there. Yeah, she said uh, she put her fingers in with sort of a plucking motion and a worm came out. I was just in shock, she said. I ran to my crewmate Allison's room and I said, I need you to see this. I just pulled a worm out of my eye. <laughs> um, let's see, believing it to be a salmon worm, they feverishly searched for similar cases on the internet but could find nothing. And visits to a local doctor and ophthalmologist also proved fruitless. They said they'd never seen anything like this. 
Um, and during that time, she pulled another four worms from her eye. Oh, my God. It's oh like a magician. God. Those ribbons. Uh, and then I could see them moving across my eye at that point, too. There were so many. Oh, my God. So, so when she went home, she went straight to the Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. OHSU. Several doctors examining my eyes, she said. And at first they were a bit skeptical because who comes in and claims they have worms in their eyes? <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking to myself, worms, please show up. Because sometimes they would go behind my eye and under the oh. eyelid and you couldn't see or feel them anymore. Like when you take your car in and it's making a noise and then as soon as they look at it, does it make the noise anymore? Exactly. It's like that, but with eye worms. <laughs> it's exactly that. <laughs> luckily, 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 after half an hour, the worms made an appearance. <laughs> Again, exciting. Luckily, it's word, word choices Luckily. are so. Oh, thank great. God, this, the worms are back. I felt one squiggle across my eyes, and I told the doctor, "You need oh. to look right now." Oh, she gosh. said, "I'll never forget the expressions on their faces as I saw it as I saw it move across my eyes. <laughs> their expressions, of course, were slightly occluded by worms." <laughs> Jesus. Oh wow. While some of the worms they removed were sent to the CDC for identification. She frequently visited the university for vision tests and eye washes designed to flush out additional worms. Although her vision remained fine, the flushes were unsuccessful. I kept pulling the worms out of my eye at home. <laughs> Luckily, it's only in one eye. You've got to be worried about cross-contamination as well. But when I went to the office, they were flush and nothing would come out. They were trying to figure out what to do because there was no roadmap, no protocol. And she, the worst part was she was wondering what the worms might do to her body so close to her brain and eyes. Ugh. Yeah, who knows where those worms are going? I mean, they disappear for half an hour. It's like, they're, where are they going? Yeah, to the store? where do they hang out when they're not there? But, they? but a doctor explained that the worms would remain on the surface of her eye, so that calmed her down. But I don't know how they know for sure, because this is new territory. I've never seen these worms before. They're probably just trying to make her not freak out. Well, you want to hear something even scarier. At the, at the end of the story, they talked about the fact that they couldn't even give her anti-parasite medicine, because doctors were worried that then a dead worm would remain in her eye and cause scarring. So she was just told to keep keep looking at your eyes and keep remove any worms, worms you out. find. <laughs> so yeah, oh. she just has to live with that uncertainty now. Apparently they are... They're common amongst animals like dogs, cats, pigs, sheep, goats, cattle, and wild carnivals like foxes and wolves, and they're transmitted by face flies that feed on the animal's eye secretions. Whoa. Apparently, tears are full of proteins of various kinds, so the flies get a lot of nourishment from these tears. For a scientist, says Dr. William Schaffner, a professor at Vanderbilt, it's a fascinating ecological niche. I have Again, to fascinating, be fascinating, like, exciting, lucky, all these words. Brilliant, happy. Yeah. Um, I was really hoping at the end of that story, though, that she would have fallen in love with the doctor at the at the university and this would turn into a romantic <laughs> comedy about eye worms because you know it's like one of those things where she goes in nobody believes her but then there's this one handsome doctor who's like no i believe you let's wait about half an hour till the till the worms show up but uh in the meantime what's your favorite ice cream yeah. no way mine too and then it becomes a mo- lifetime movie mm-hmm. while you were worming <laughs> i can't think of a good title for it i see you <laughs> oh no oh god <laughs> i bet that already is a lifetime original yeah it's on its way to being one for sure so um parasitic gra- love <laughs> oh man i just can't believe they couldn't even i wanted a great ending where it's like and here's the thing we can all take to make sure this never happens to us but here's but- yeah here, well here's the surprising bit of the story but by the way, not the eye, not the worm eyes, which mm-hmm. in itself is quite surprising. The scientists were expecting to find a species of the Thelazia parasite called Californiensis, which is what infected the eyes of the ten previous human cases of eye worms. One, nine of them in California, one from Utah. It's an eye worm that inf- often infects dogs and very occasionally crosses to humans. 
says the CDC's Bradbury. Another type of eyeworm called Calipeda found in Asia and Europe has also infected people, but it's also rare, with only 163 reported cases with a dog in his father's factory. That sounds like a weird um, euphemistic yeah. description yeah. of something. Encounters? Uh, multiple brief contacts. Multiple contact. brief contacts. Brief contacts. Hmm. Hmm, were there tokens involved yeah. in these contacts? Um. So he recalled nothing abnormal about the dog. <laughs> the dog <laughs> seemed fine. Brief he was cool. I don't know. We didn't talk much. So the, the thing that's surprising about this is this species, Thalazia golosa, is unique to cattle and has never before been seen in a human eye. That means Beckley was infected by cattle near her home before she left for Alaska. Oh, so I was going to say, like, how'd she trip. get it on the fishing boat? We're fishing um, for cows. So was she having multiple brief contacts with cows? <laughs> yeah. I love, maybe that's what the scientists have to call petting a dog. Or, multiple brief contacts. Hang on. I, there's, another, the there's another possibility we haven't considered, and that's a mer-cow. Okay. Ooh. Which is basically... That's, yeah, you get the human eye on top, all, all the cow parts down below, so the worm comes on board thinking it's, it's a regular cow, because from the ground... You're it's like cow. a cow. You're cow first. By the time you get up to the eyes, like these are human eyes, but I'm here. So, so was she? Did she have multiple brief contacts with a mer cow? I mean, isn't I'm a, no isn't that basically just a yes? Isn't that? that just a manatee? Didn't we discuss <laughs> this true. on the Forest Shore episode? Oh wait, is a mer cow a human, a cow, and a fish, <laughs> or is it just? He might be. I think it is just a manatee. That's a mer cow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, manatees are as. As Forrest explained in quite some detail, <laughs> our friend Forrest, who's a comedian now, used to be a marine biologist working mostly with manatees. Oh, wow. And they are adorable and dumb as all hell. They're, just, <laughs> they're very cute. They're I very mean, cute. I enjoy any, any manatee meme that I see. Um, but they managed to get themselves in, in storm drains. <laughs> like, I, mean, they all I have really s- thought you were going to say they managed to get themselves in all kinds of trouble. <laughs> they basically did. <laughs> Like but that is trouble. They get caught in storm drains. They've they've been found quite a distance inland, having to be somehow winched out of <laughs> oh, those oh, manatees. They get stuck in a Taco Bell drive-through. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they have to be rescued. Stupid manatees. Stupid murkows. <laughs> Matt, do you have another story for us? I guess I do. I just. <laughs> I, well, just to finish off this oh, story yeah. first. So 20, 20 days after pulling the first worm out of her eye, Beckley discovered the w- final wiggling worm. Once that was out, her ordeal was over. She wow. knows because she has not found another one since. Her vision remains good. But why go public with her story, asked CNN. Part of the reason I'm speaking out, she says, is that I've wished that I could find one article or source that would reassure me that this happened to someone else and they are fine. If this does happen again... I'm hoping my story will be out there for the next person to find. And watch for her wedding announcement in the New York Times to the doctor who pulled, <laughs> pulled the first worm out of her eye. So the other story, if you do have eye worms, just keep, keep on pulling. And you're not alone. Yeah, you're not alone. Keep you're on having alone. multiple brief contacts with those worms <laughs> until they stop showing up. <laughs> yeah, but don't, don't get your face too close to that cow. No. Um, you, you might want to rub your face on it. They look soft, but oh. don't. I'll rub my face on a cow. Enjoy. You just try and stop me. Enjoy cows from a distance. I wouldn't dream of trying to stop you. As they're meant to be. Hey, Andy, you know what's not a horrible thing to have in your eye? What's that? A delicious and nutritious recipe card. Oh, yeah. Together with accompanying food from HelloFresh, making it simple and easy to prepare a meal at home for less than $10 a meal. 
I agree. This is a very good thing, not, not a bad thing. It is. This is almost the opposite of the story we were just discussing. Um, we've been doing HelloFresh. They, yeah, we, they we, were kind enough to sponsor the show, and so they, they hooked us up. We've been cooking with it. Here's how it works. You can choose your delivery day. So for whenever it works best for you, for your busy life, uh, you can you feel confident when cooking HelloFresh because it's it's super easy. I've uh, you've done it. I've done it. We've cooked meals as we've established. I am not. I am the kind of guy who's been known to make a mustardilla, which is uh, as simple and gross as it sounds. Um, so yeah, I, I don't go out of my way to <laughs> a to mustardilla. Find... Did you? Say... Yeah, we didn't talk about mustardillas. No, I think Jesse caught me making a mustardilla one time. It's just when you take a tortilla and put mustard on it and fold it in half and eat it. That's a mustardilla. Uh, but even a kitchen idiot not, like me. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, surprisingly not included in the many delicious and balanced dinners that HelloFresh offers. Yep. Uh, yeah, they make it really easy to cook delicious balanced dinners for less than $10 a meal. They have a wide variety of chef-curated recipes that change every week. You can choose between classic, veggie, and family meals. I go classic. Yep. And the recipes only take around half an hour. Yep. Even, even again, for a, for a dullard like me, you can still be uh, in and out in about that amount of time. And uh, you end up with a great meal that, that you had some fun making. Yeah, I can tell you the, some of the ones I had because I'm veggie. So the, the three meals that they sent me for this pack were uh, uh, Seitan Tacos El Diablo, which is uh. in their Hall of Fame. That's one of their that they brought that one back. That's a, a vegetarian taco. No mustard in there. No mustard. In the tortilla. <laughs> Instead, 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 there was kiwi salsa and lime crema. So they went slightly more sophisticated than just some yellow mustard spread mm. with a knife. Uh, I also made baby portobello, and I'd never know how to pronounce this particular pasta shape. Um, orecchietti, or, 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 orecchietti. Orecchietti. I want to say. It's I think the, it has to do with the fact that it's like it's kind of the shell-shaped ones, like they look like ears almost. I think that is similar, the root of the word or something is ear-related, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, a primavera with asparagus and bell pepper. Mm. It was both delicious and made my pizza smell weird for a, for a half a day. And and then grilled cheese and veggie jumble. That was the other one that they sent me. Jumble? Jumble. Jumble. It was a jumble of grilled cheese and vegetables. But you jumbled it, up the grilled cheese. It was. Look at, look at how picturesque this is. And to be honest, my plate didn't look that different from that like it really did i know this is a professionally photographed photographed and dressed plate but actually it was it was a really colorful and good looking plate of food with a cilantro chimichurri Mm. i now know how to make i know how to make a chimichurri now that's a thing that i've learned is that a pesto based thing what's yeah exactly it's it's sort of pesto-ish except instead it's um uh, cilantro and uh, yeah, and there's a little bit of garlic and some lemon in there. Okay. Uh, and what else was there? Was what else was in there? Uh, some little bit of cumin and some chili. And those were all so veggie. A little bit of heat. Those were all veggie. That had grilling. They call it grilling cheese. It's halloumi. I don't know why Americans seem to just call I've it grilling cheese. I've never heard of halloumi. Even the packet that it came in said Hal- grilling cheese. Halloumi. Halloumi is a type of cheese. It's word. Greek. It's it. If in Britain, it's one of the go-to vegetarian. Like if you're in a like a pub restaurant type thing, and often the vegetarian halloumi is like the go-to vegetarian option. Oh, okay. Because it's kind of meaty. It's like it's cheese, but it. you can grill it. You put it. You can either grill it under, like under a grill, or you can put it straight on a frying pan, and it kind of it stays in one piece. It's and like it, tofu-ish consistency or something. Yeah, or? even a bit more. It's got a sort of it's got a bite to it. It's got a sort of meaty texture to it. Okay. 
Very nice. One cool. of my favorite cheeses, and you don't really get it out here, but HelloFresh thought to chuck it in there. That's awesome. I made the sweetest honey chicken. I made uh, pork tenderloin with cherry. I forgot the actual name of it. I don't have it in front of me, but that was my favorite of the last uh, three that I got. The beef chili was also great, but yeah, the pork tenderloin with the cherry sauce was outstanding. So. Anyway, this is all super easy for you to make, yeah. and it's e- like if you're wondering, like, well, what, what, I don't know about trying it out. $30 off using our code, probably 30 So it it suddenly becomes the most affordable food you're going to have all week by quite a long way. Try it out. See if it works for you. I, It's really easy to cook, and it's really good food. It's tasty. It's easy. It comes they're, right to your door. Their recipe plans, they give you these cards that have pictures that like really hold your hand through the whole process. It, they give you what you need to go in there. So all you really need to do is a little bit of chopping and then some chucking in a pan and stirring it's pretty foolproof and you end up with a nice meal and you get to feel like a kitchen star yep so again hellofresh.com enter the code probably 30 and you'll get 30 dollars off your first week help yourself and help our show do it it's olympic time oh yes is it it is winter olympics going on have, right now i have watched not a single minute of it i've watched a bit yeah i enjoy the winter olympics i've watched some mostly figure skating it that's is like the, that's that's the it's the big uh, money, I don't know. Yeah, that's the thing, right? <laughs> yeah. That's all there is, kind of. It is weird how the the Winter Olympics is divided into, like, half the sports are pretty quantifiable, um, like, how quick or how high or how fast can you go? Right, and then right. the other half are like, a group of people decide if you're good at dancing. Right. Like, it's yeah, just um, what's one the, of them is just definitely empirical. One of them is like you, you. Well, like, actually, you know what? I'm, I'm going to scrap that because half of them are sort of mixed anyway. Even like ski jumping is sort of a hybrid of the two because half of it's how far you go, and then half of it is a group of people going, "Did you do it nicely?" Yeah. Did you cross your skis on the way down from your like 475 degree flip? Um, yeah, yeah. That's all. I mean, I think I've talked about this before, but I, growing up swimming, I was always kind of like. Be begrudge the fact that diving also affects whether you win the meet like why and people are like well track has track and field I'm like but field events are also not subjective where diving is like gymnastics or figure skating it's totally this subjective style yeah. thing i guess the summer olympics, is, lose, uh, the summer olympics is full of the same thing as well i guess you've got like some of it's them are all, how fast can you cross how quickly do you cross the line and then some of them are did you do an extra little step after doing the tumble? Did you smile at the judges as you passed them? Right, right. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> we talked on the episode with David Epstein, who wrote The Sports Gene, we talked about this, and there's an acronym for the, those kinds of hard, measurable sports. I forgot what it is. Like, CT, you know, things that can be measured in, like, meters or in, in time or distance or weight or something, as opposed to, like, the subjective. Right, things that are absolutely empirical. Like, yeah. who, who got from... The here beginning of the 100-meter track to the end of the 100-meter right. track in the shortest amount of time. Right. Not who did it the fanciest, which I would win. I'm not fast, but I can run fancy very running. fancy. I wish I someone would just that. let me. <laughs> Why won't they just let me? You know what? It's, I'm going to be too old for the Olympics when they allow fancy running, and I'm going to be very upset about it. Would you know, be that might be a senior's category. Would you be dressing fancy also, or are you just wearing a track suit but then just running fancy? I don't know if you're asking if the sport involves dressing fancy, but if you're asking me personally, yes. I would, would dress, dress fancy. fancy and run fancy. Imagine, um, imagine a cross between Stevie Nicks and <laughs> and Liberace, but like 
but, so a lot but of twirling. Sleek. Yeah, sleek, so I don't trip. Right, but um, they're definitely tassels. Oh my god, there's tassels. There's Maybe a fringe. Cape. At the end, I pull out a worm from my eye, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very fancy worm. Um, you have rings on every finger. Is that part of Liberace there? Um, yes, okay. huge rings on every finger. Maybe more than one. Um, Which you might think would slow you down, but again, speed not important in the fancy <laughs> running category. Yeah. I mean, if you get there fast, good for you, but it's not about that. <laughs> it's more of a cape and shawl sort of. Uh... Yeah, I, I suppose also once you reach a certain age, it crosses from fancy to elegant. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. Unless you are not very. Here's the thing about elegant. I as as a plus size woman, I know that you can only be elegant if you're thin. So they would call me eccentric instead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, oh, here's one of our most eccentric fancy runners. She's certainly not as elegant as uh, as Valeria, the Russian, but she's she's eccentric in her own way. She's... I didn't know eccentric was like uh, like husky or like. Uh... <laughs> she has a sm- style all onto herself. <laughs> I think I think there is a connection between eccentric. And, well, there's also a you can you you can be husky or you can be old. Those are you have to be one of the two to be eccentric. I think. Oh uh, right. So if you're gonna get into fancy. What are we calling? We're just calling it fancy running. Yeah, fancy running. Okay, fancy running. I mean, that's the working title for now. We're willing to take on any uh, uh, you know suggestions of alts for fancy running, but it works for now, I think. Yeah, yeah. if you have a better name for that event, I'm I'm more focused on the sport, so I'm not going to think of a better name. For Do you it. think it would matter what color cape or shawl you're wearing for the judges? I mean, probably you're going to be dressed in something that represents your country. Um, I, I would say that the judges probably prefer uh, a lot of spangles. I don't think the color matters so much, but definitely a lot of fringe. And if there's some somewhere on your person is hidden a glitter cannon, <laughs> you at some point pull and it shoots into the air. Um, you get extra technical points for that. Because sometimes glitter, you get demerits for that because you don't think about. Oh, no, not, not clean in that fancy running. Okay, okay. The it more glitter, clean up. Just leave it all out there. Though isn't glitter now thought to be quite unenvironmentally sound? People don't like glitter, I think. And I wouldn't like... If you, one of you set off a glitter cannon here right now, You'd I would be, so be angry. excited. <laughs> someone did that at the comedy store the other night. Just had like... But that was a confetti cannon, but still. Still, someone... I'm like... Oh, you fuck! You should be the one who has to stay after they close. <laughs> All I can and, say is you're really lucky that there's not enough room in here for me to do my fancy run. Okay, because <laughs> I do have glitter cannons here. I just never know when it's going to happen. So, but I don't have enough room in here to do it. Okay, I'm glad. I'm glad there's always collateral glitter damage. Yeah. So some of the Olympic events, uh, particularly speed skating, where it really is down to if you ever seen speed skaters, it's down to the millisecond, even the fraction of a millisecond. They are, they do everything in their power to be as aerodynamic as possible. And one of the things that, this is, this is a story that it's so hard to quantify. And it has a scientific bent, but also I'm wondering how much it strays into the world of pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. But Olympic speed skaters have decided that blue is the fastest color. <laughs> so Olympic color... The speed skaters sometimes race for more than six miles, and gold medals can be determined by hundredths of a second. Yeah, I was so, going to say, I don't think they do thousandths, do milliseconds in speed skating, do they? I don't think maybe any... short track, but um, oh. but I could be wrong. But hundred, okay, so hundred, but even still, hundredths of a second's difference over a six-mile track. That means that you're dealing with the tiniest variance, the tiniest things that can make you faster or slower are the difference between gold medal and not even placing 
So countries that take the sport seriously have looked for every possible scientific advantage from the composition of the hinge that connects the skate blade to the boot to the aerodynamics of the hoods on the racing suits. In the months leading up to the Winter Games, the current ones, some of the sport's biggest powers seem to be under the sway of a new and far less scientifically rigorous belief about their equipment. Blue is the fastest color. (laughs) What is this based on, though? Like... The people who go the fastest are wearing blue because it might just be that people really like blue. Well, this it's a is nice color to look at. Well, this is what this is where it sort of strays into possible pseudoscience, but then they've also run tests because speed skating fans and competitions were amused recently when skaters from three countries, Germany, Norway, and South Korea, showed up to the first World Cup of the event uh, event of the season wearing new uniforms in a suspiciously suspiciously similar shade of blue. Th- South Korea has historically won blue, but Germany and Norway haven't. Particularly jarring for Norway, whose long history of speed skating prowess has been attained in red. Always red. They're, they've won. Norway is big on this speed skating circuit. They've won 80 medals at the Olympics, behind only the 105 won by the Netherlands. So, the Norwegians' whole history uh, is in these red suits. But ha- Hein Otterspeer, who's a sprint specialist from the Netherlands, who, he- who reported here in the same rumors as everyone else at the World Cup races, said that people are now saying that the blue color is faster. But that's a strange theory, but maybe they tested it and it went better than the red suit. With any new piece of equipment, there's an assumption that it's been tested and tested again at ice rinks and labs and wind tunnels. And these top countries are involved in a hush-hush arms race. Uh, Lockheed Martin was involved in the development of the racing suits worn by the United States at the last Olympic Games. That makes sense. But the uh, every so often there are flops, like the suit worn by the Americans in 2014... Which is the grandiosely named and ultimately underperforming Mac 39 from Under Armour. Mac 39, suspiciously weird... similar to the fancy running costume. Yeah, <laughs> but what, it, what it features a dimpled, of... vented material. But why Mac 39? What... I don't know. I, I'd imagine probably because they decided it was the Mac range, and it was the 39th uh-huh. model that they tried. Okay. But either that, or it enables people to go at 39 times, times the speed yeah. of sound. Good for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't know which. So that one didn't work well. Apparently, yeah, that suit was that suit was shitty. But the notion that certain colors could be faster than others, some skaters found it preposterous. Others accepted it. Many were just confused. Norwegian skater Hegi Boko said, "They say it skates a little faster than red, so I like to believe that." <laughs> yeah, you can like to believe whatever you want. It doesn't make it true. Uh, Any, uh, so. What does that mean? She said. Well, she said, "I have no clue." The Koreans and Germans are also skating in blue, so maybe it's something. <laughs> I mean, it seems like okay. I know that that when you get down to like drag coefficients of this stuff is very small, yeah. hard to. Det- but couldn't you just get two identical mannequins, two identical suits, but one's red, one's blue, put them in the same wind tunnel? Well, and you'd like, assume that they like, have uh, done that. So Reno Shamsi, who's a professor of color science and technology at North Carolina State. Wait, wait, a professor of color science color and technology si- and the technology of color. Okay. And uh, in the in the South, which worries me. Yeah, that's it. Seems, worries me uh... that there's a Southern professor of color science. <laughs> I like it. Uh, I've come to a point in my life, says Renzo, that I have sufficient confidence in what I've done and what I know, but at the same time, I'm not so arrogant as to dismiss claims that people make. Having said that, based on my knowledge of dye chemistry, I cannot possibly imagine how dyeing the same fabric with two dyes that have the same properties to different hues will generate different aerodynamic responses. 
Well, is he certain that those two dyes do have the same properties? Because maybe one of them actually has a different material maybe. science-y property or something. So, so Chris Needham, an equipment technician from the United States team and a former national team skater, said the discussion reminded him of a conversation he had with a ski jumper years ago at the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid. Uh, when Needham asked him why so many jumpers seem to be wearing orange suits, the jumper replied, it flies better. So everybody in every sport is just full of shit with superstition. Yeah, it feels like it is superstitious. Dai Dai Natab, who's a sprint specialist for the Netherlands, says it's been proven that blue is faster than other colors. <laughs> every Olympic season, everyone's f- trying to find the hidden gem. This year, it's the blue suits. But that guy is also selling you blue dye. Yeah. yeah. Um, Couldn't this also be like that story we did about the, how kids do better on tests when they're dressed as Batman? Yeah, the story from last week. <laughs> you know what, though? I actually feel like there is something to that, probably, because the kids feel more confident or what have you. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, yeah. maybe maybe it works the same way. If you think that blue suits are faster, then maybe you do go faster because you think the blue is giving you a little extra power. So it's kind of like, it's superstition, but there's also that's, some actual psychology behind that's it. That's exactly what this article goes on to say as to wondering whether it's gamesmanship. In t- speed skating, posturing is as common as actual technological progress. Mike Crow, who's the coach of the Canadian team, said, I look at this as the oldest trick in the book. It's about ensuring intrigue. It just It's just gamesmanship. Makes them doubt. Makes them wonder. Like, if you're the one outlier, if it's a year when everyone goes blue and you're wearing red, like, is that just going to throw you off enough psychologically to make Oh, you, you just look different. Or like, they're like, why are they wearing blue? What do they know that we don't know? Like, it's all about, like, that right. psychological... Again, again, if you're dealing with something that's hundredths of a second over a six-mile track, anything that gives a slight psychological edge would also be as important as anything that gives an aerodynamic edge. Um, in what the New York Times article describes as a fireside interview at the rink, that seems like a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how rinks work. <laughs> Harvold Mikkelvest, who's the sports scientist leading Norway's secret suit development ep- effort, seems amused at the attention the uniforms garnered over the past few weeks. He hinted that over-eager Norwegian journalists might have played a role in the proliferation of this new colour theory, and still he seemed content to let the speculations uh, simmer. He demurred when asked whether his team's research has shown colour alone could affect the aerodynamics of the material. He stuck to tantalising generalities. (laughs) Tantalising generalities. (laughs) What I've said is that our new blue suit is faster than our old red suit, he said with a tight (laughs) smile, and I stand by that. (laughs) That is tantalising. Yeah, yeah. Still, it does. It go. It goes on to talk about this article. Goes on to talk about how just feeling fast can be as important as actually being fast. A large body of research showed that color can affect performance from a purely psychological standpoint. Sporting participants wearing some colors may feel more confident or powerful, and opponents may infer qualities about their opponents that depend on what color they're wearing. The Olympics in South Korea will be the first time North Korea will wear proprietary uniforms rather than suits from a mass, mass producer. Mikkelberg said the overall goal of his two-year project, nicknamed Top Speed, was to engineer a suit that could subtract eight one-hundredths of a second per lap. It may be too early to tell whether Norwegians achieved that goal or whether their new blue uniforms are made the faster, but for what it's worth, a Norwegian skater, Harvard Holmfjord Lorentzen, was leading the men's overall World Cup standings last week. Interesting. I wonder if there is any limit to what you're allowed to do with suits, because remember like 10 years ago, the in swimming they had those full body suits and then they yeah. ban- they banned those did which, they get banned people yeah. don't wear those anymore yeah yeah that uh but those were like those were legitimately faster right because they did yeah but i mean I, i'm not i i'm just devil's advocate here like it, what's wrong with being faster isn't that the goal of all these sports is to fi- see how you can reduce drag and become faster yeah. yeah i don't know so it it said 
we d- uh, finishes, and here's another clue to what's going on in this article. We we just decided we needed to take a bit more responsibility for our racing suits rather than just buying them from a supplier somewhere, said jo- Jeremy with Wotherspoon, the sprint coach for the Norwegian team. That seemed fair enough, but there were more pressing questions. What about the colour? Wotherspoon smiled, unfolded his arms, and pointed to the hat he was wearing, which bore the logo of the Norwegian seafood company that sponsored the team, which was blue. <laughs> So it, it, I feel like it, this goes real deep somehow. Just, so it, it feels like it might just be that their sponsor has a blue logo, so they're wearing blue suits this year, <laughs> and ever and now they're just playing psychological mind games with the entire field. And everyone's like, "We need to go blue. Blue is the fastest color." Yeah, and also I didn't realize that speed skaters were like the NASCAR racers of the Olympics. I thought Olympics were always just about the country affiliation there weren't yeah i didn't think you were allowed to wear logos but they've got like logos and what else is on these yeah i thought the whole point of the olympics is it's meant to be amateur which it isn't anymore but i thought but at least i didn't think you had corporate sponsors for i mean i can't picture other teams having but do they have the logo on the uniforms or is it just known that there's a company who makes the uniforms these examples they have kia on their thighs and oh and shoulders yeah, I thought I thought the only thing you should be advertising during the Olympics is the glory of the human body and the achievements of sport. <laughs> Not anymore. Sh- now I definitely want to buy a Kia because I've seen it on a on a very athletic oh, thigh. You're so impressionable. Like <laughs> I'll do anything. <laughs> if you I mean if you put Gatorade uh, across the butt of a figure skater, you bet I'm pausing it, walking to the corner, <laughs> buying some Gatorade and coming back to finish watching figure skating. And a grape while you're there. Yeah. A single grape. One single grape, if I have my token. It does say in this article that was linked to from the other article that a new a new study, this is an old study, this is from 2009, said the color the colors can affect your, your behavior. The color red can make people's work more accurate, but blue can make them more creative. Hmm. This is a study from 2009 published uh, in the in Science magazine. Researchers at the University of British Columbia conducted tests with 600 participants to see how cognitive performance varies when people see red or blue. Participants performed tasks in which words or images were displayed against blue, red, or neutral backgrounds on computer screens. Red groups did better on tests of recall and attention to detail, like remembering words or checking spelling and punctuation. Blue groups did better on tests requiring invention and imagination, coming up with creative uses for a brick or creating toys from collections of shapes. If you're talking about wanting enhanced memory for something like proofreading skills, then a red color should be used. Concluded Juliet Zhu, an assistant professor of marketing at the university's business school who uh, conducted the studies with Ravi Mehta, a doctoral student. For a brainstorming session or a new product or coming up with a new solution to fighting childhood obesity or teenage smoking, those are two very specific examples, (laughs) then you should get people into a blue room. I guess I feel like I feel like that's what Juliet worked on before this study. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I does this mean that if you just don't care about anything, surround yourselves in browns and blacks and grays? I guess. And they have no they have no uh useful properties. Um if you just want to end it all, just surround yourself in neutrals. Uh yeah. It seems it seems reasonable to me. His I just did some quick Googling because I also wanted to see if uh, there was something to... I remember every time presidential debate cycles start up, people are always talking about like red and blue ties, which one is... Because a red tie is... That's what they call a power tie, right? Right. For some reason. And Trump is definitely a red tie guy, but maybe that's more because 
in the last 20 years, we've suddenly decided that that red and blue stuff is consistent. Or before that, it was... Remember before 2000, how every network would have a different color code for the parties on maps? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, that only started in, in like 2000. The I, blue I, states are Democrat. Before that, it was like every network had their own... I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess 2000 is when I started paying more atten- close attention to American politics. So if, in my head, it's always been blues, Democrat, reds, Republican, I'm which, by the sure way, is that. the opposite way around to how it is in Britain. I think we've had this conversation. But we have had this conversation ago. on the show. Yeah, yeah it's, but it's annoyingly confusing that in Britain, the right-wing party is blue and the left-wing party is red. It seems like we got the better color. You know what, though? We need to just gather random groups of Democrats and Republicans and see which one is faster. Exactly. Because, like, we, who deserves who deserves the the actual blue color? It should be the faster group. So, if you have a race between Democrats and Republicans, um, if any if any group is faster, they should they've earned the blue. Which group do you think is fancier? Mm. I kind of think know, Republicans might be fancier. I agree. I think fa- I think Republicans tend to be very fancy. I don't know if they'd be great at fancy running, um, <laughs> but they they do tend to be there. You know, if you go to Texas and you meet some Republicans, they'll have some high hair. Uh-huh. They'll have some big jewelry. Um, they might have a you know outlandish hats. An outlandish hat. Uh, they can be pretty fancy. Yeah. So there was an Olympic uniform study in two thousand and four. Uh, from uh, Durham University in England that found that athletes in the Olympics who wore red instead of blue in boxing, taekwondo, Greco-Roman wrestling and freestyle wrestling won 60% of the time. The research suggests that red for athletes as for animals subconsciously symbolizes dominance. Perhaps a similarly primal effect was afoot in a 2008 study led by Andrew Elliott at the University of Rochester in which men considered photographs of women on red backgrounds are wearing red shirts more attractive although not necessarily more likable or intelligent. Mm. (laughs) Then there was a cocktail party study in which a group of interior designers, architects, and corporate color scientists... Wow, what a job. ...built makeshift bars in red, blue, or yellow. They found that the more people chose the yellow and red rooms over blue, but blue partygoers stayed longer. Red and yellow guests were more social and active, and while red guests reported feeling hungry and thirsty, yellow guests ate twice as much. Yeah, that's why there's. I've totally heard about that before because that's why all fast food restaurants they have like logos and interiors in red and yellow and orange because oh. it makes people eat more. That's why there are no fast food restaurants that are blue inside. And it also makes people eat quicker because what they want is high turnover. They want people to come in, get the food, and then get out for the right. next to clear the tables. Get in, take your cheeseburger in one bite. Don't chew, just swallow. Yeah, get out. Chug, chug, chug. They they do all sorts of things like McDonald's. I think McDonald's were the first to have the wider straws as well, so you drink the soda quicker. Oh, God. <laughs> that's so sad. Oh, I thought that was just... I guess that's kind of a win-win. I want to drink it quicker, though. Like, it's good that it... Can... Do you, though? <laughs> but then it's Give weird. Give that sugar. It's weird, though, because as they make the straws wider, they also make the cups bigger. So what does it accomplish, really? It's just you're, you're mainlining more soda into your system more quickly. But I, I, I don't... You're getting more hooked, because I don't think it costs them very much for an extra... Oh, yeah, super cheap for, for them to sell soda. But but again, if the thing's big enough, then she's saying it negates the time gain that they have. That's true. Right. Yeah. So if you're drinking out of a bucket, you know, with a <laughs> wide very straw wide straw, it's still, a bucket. it's still a bucket of soda. That is very true. In the cognitive realm, experts say color may affect performance because of the mood they transmit. When things go wrong or when you feel that situation you're in is problematic, you're more likely to pay attention to detail, which helps you with processing tasks, but interferes with creative types of things, says Norbert Schwartz, who's a psychology professor in Michigan. By contrast, people in a happy mood are more creative and less analytic. 
Many people link red to problematic things like emergencies or mistakes on tests. And Republicans. Right. Experts say such associations to red, stop, fire, alarm, warning, can be activated without a person's awareness and then influence what they're thinking about or doing, says John Barg, a a psychology professor at Yale. Blue seems a weaker effect than red... (laughs) <laughs> that's great uh, for the benefit of the listeners Andy I didn't realize Andy has smart lights now that are nicked oh. up to his phone while we're talking he's just turned the room into a into a red and therefore How I've got to be about- honest I feel so dangerous right now really my confetti cannon could go off at any moment. <laughs> how, do you, how do you feel now? Um, uh, you know what? Now I feel pretty calm, actually, and not at all hungry. I would sip soda out of a small teacup. Oh, okay. We're in, we're in blue mode right we now. We are in blue mode. Although I'm looking at the have. thing that has a yellowish lampshade, so it's more green from my perspective. Hmm, what else can I... Well, this is sort of pink. I don't know. What do you feel? So blue seems a weaker effect than red, but blue skies, blue water are calm and positive, so that effect makes sense too. Still, there are caveats, says Schwartz. In some contexts, red is a dangerous thing, and in some contexts, red is a nice thing. If you're walking across a frozen river, blue is a dangerous thing. I really feel like this article is reaching no conclusions <laughs> yeah, I, whatsoever. Yeah. Just, I have sort of tuned out. Not to, not to Brooks you, Matt, but uh, it, now I'm just playing with the lights. Well, it, it also makes a difference whether the color dominates a person's views, as on a computer screen, or if it's part of what a person sees. It's possible that brightness or intensity of color has an effect. That might explain why some results of some studies have been mixed. Some found no effect, but used mostly pastels. One found that students Wait, taking... is mi- that how Brits say pastels? Mm-hmm. Really? Pastels. Pastels, that's so adorable. One found that <laughs> students taking midterms did better on blue paper than red, but used a depressing blue and an upbeat red. This person is getting paid by the word. Yes. <laughs> you are correct. Uh, Elliot also found that people showing red on a test cover before an IQ test did worse than those showing green or a neutral color and also chose easier questions to answer. IQ tests require more problem solving, similar to the creative questions as you asked. Okay, I'm done with this story now. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't, know how, I don't know how you've kept going this long. <laughs> we will... We will link to the those stories on the Squarespace Space Powered Probably Science dot com website. We've got a sign up code for Squarespace as well, haven't we, Andy? Oh yeah. If you want to uh set up your own website, you can use the code probably science when you do so and you can uh do that at a discount and get a free trial and it helps us a little bit. So uh, and people have gone to that website and f- what is the code? Are you looking it's at it? It's just probably, probably science. science? Yep. There we go. Um People have done that, and people have also used the donation button and sent us some money. Thank you so much, Jacob Rochester, who's a brand new donor. Thank you, Zvonimir Kroons. Thank you, Pandora Young, Patrick Chalky, Kate Birch, Stuart Holding, Brooks Gilmore, James Casson, Karen Meeburn, Linda Moulton. Holy shit, Linda. Oh, as always, ridiculous. And also, thank you very much, Justin Broad. And then we got some one-off donations from Robbie Gorman and Richard Petty. Thank you very much, both of you. Uh, so thank you. You can, if you're not able to donate, you can also help us out by spreading the word, writing nice things yes. on iTunes, and also using our code when you buy stuff from HelloFresh. Hey, we haven't done a a past, 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 past history story for a while. That's true, I guess. Paleontology mm-hmm. story. Dinosaurs. This is a story set in by Paul Steenbeck. Dinosaurs too successful for their own good. Um, I just before we even read the story, yeah. I just want to maybe postulate about what that. That headline might mean okay. about whether dinosaurs were too successful for their own good. Because do you think it means that perhaps they were just too ambitious? Um, maybe they didn't pay enough attention to their families, or perhaps they put they placed uh, their jobs ahead of their own self actualization. Right. Um, All these hard like, career driven 
velociraptors. I haven't ever thought of dinosaurs that way. That's exactly what it was. And then it just took like a little revelation at Christmas (laughs) for them to realize that they haven't been prioritizing the right things in life. Yeah. You know what? There was like a tragedy that was narrowly averted. They realized what they had and then they decided to maybe slow down a little bit and hold their families close. And that's when a meteor killed them all. Yeah. Because I think it says it just before the meteor hit, the, the asteroid hit Earth, um, UK researchers believe that one of the dinosaurs said, hang on, am I, am, am I working to live or am I living to work? <laughs> and you know what? None of the other dinosaurs could give him a good answer because they understood that he was right. You know, he, they knew that he was just living to work. It's these city dinosaurs losing track of their <laughs> small town values. Just constantly hustling for the next sex token. <laughs> and, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all just grapes, you know? It's, it's grapes just all the way down. Grapes on grapes. UK researchers believe that they've been, they were a victim of their own success. A study mapping how dinosaurs spread around the world um, shows they may have been a victim of their own success. They were already in decline before the asteroid hit. From their roots in South America, the dinosaurs migrated in a frenzy of movement to cover the planet. Hundreds of different dinosaurs appear, appeared, from the ferocious T-Rex to the gigantic long-necked... Uh, now, 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 do we now pronounce this Diplodocus or Diplodocus? I thought it was the accent on the second syllable. I don't, I'm not sure. I thought it was Diplodocus. Because I always grew up saying Diplodocus, and then I've been corrected recently, and now I don't know who's right. I also thought it was Diplodocus, but I am wrong about many things. Um, I think this can be like a pastel situation but either way by the time but anyway like they, they're all dead now so who knows how they pronounced right. it yeah they could have said it completely differently by the time the asteroids struck killing them off they were starting to decline as they'd run out of space on earth the theory outlined in the journal nature ecology and evolution reconstructs the paths taken by the dinosaurs as they moved out of south america they burst onto the scene and really quickly moved to all parts of Earth, says Dr. Chris Venditti. Burst onto the scene. Yeah. Like a, like like a pop strokes. star or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, the first you rise, the first you crash. So true. The dinosaurs were able to take advantage of a blank canvas left by the extinction known as the Great Dying just before they appeared. I didn't know. So that, that was the, the Great Dying extinction was not related to the asteroid. That was before that. There was another time when everything just died. Apparently yeah. so. I think we talked about that with uh, Dennis Staff, didn't we? I think he might be I right. I forgot when it, she told us about all these different extinction events, but I forgot the order of all of them. So they quickly spread across the devastated planet, taking up every opportunity to expand with little competition for food, space, or resources from other animals. But towards the end of their reign, their progress slowed as they became adapted to almost every habitat on Earth. Only avian dinosaurs survived to become the birds we know today. They filled the earth, there was nowhere to move to, and they were really specialized in their habitat so they couldn't produce new species, says Dr. Ciara O'Donovan at the University of Reading. It would have been the final nail in the coffin for them apart from the birds. The research is based on a statistical method to work out where every dinosaur and its ancestors existed in three-dimensional space on the globe. This gives more complete picture than studying fossil evidence alone, which is patchy and incomplete. But not all researchers are convinced by the idea that the dinosaurs were in decline before the asteroid hit Earth. The dinosaurs were continually diversifying all through the Cretaceous when the continents had split into smaller units, said Professor David Martill at the University of Portsmouth, who is not connected with the research. They were still diversifying at the end of the Cretaceous just before the meteorite impact hit. So we're not saying that their diversification made them more susceptible to the 
asteroid. We're just saying, even if the asteroid hadn't hit, they might have died out because they, they were spread themselves too thin. On the way. But I feel like... I thought diversity was always good from evolution. Like, I thought if you have one species of, like... They I th- planted the same tree on this one. I think the problem that the problem from this is is more not so much diversification, but over specialization of each group. So, but if but if they would have died anyway, except for the flying dinosaurs that were able to, you know, as sort of escape the the ramifications of of an asteroid hitting Earth, then what's the what's the big deal if they were too specialized or not? Well, I, th- I think that's the point. The, the over specialization was the thing that was already making them decline. I see because they were. But but even still, surely they would plateau rather than rather than fully decline. There might be a dip, but I, surely then it would reach a balance where, all right, you've 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 had this blank canvas of an Earth where you're free. It's really free of other animals that are going to be in competition. So now you just get to propagate and get everywhere, and then you highly specialize for specific environments. But then you then then you get too specialized. And then the competition becomes too fierce in each environment, and you can't find you can't go to other environments because you're too specialized. Okay. But then surely, okay. around that point, it would then start to die off, and other variants and other mutations would happen, and it would it would sink, but it would reach a bit of it would it would reach a level, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it sort of reach some equilibrium? I think so. And then when do you get the phone call that your dad's gone into the hospital and you have to get on a red eye? across the country to be That's already when you've become very highly specialized. Okay. You can only live in one habitat next to one sort of tree um, mm-hmm. because and, that's the only thing that you eat. And then you just realize how many milestone moments you were just in the office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're like, is this the life I want to live? It makes you think. Like, it makes you take, take a, a big uh, clawed foot step back. Yeah. And that's when you also run across the tundra to reach your son's softball game in time for the end. <laughs> And it's, believe me, T-Rex softball is the most adorable thing. Okay. <laughs> you know, those little arms, they try so hard. It's its pathetic, but adorable. Yeah, yeah. And then you just stand up slowly in the stand and just start a one single applause that then everyone else joins in with. I don't, Which again, can T-Rex's clap? Arms. I'm not sure the arms can connect, but you just have to like sort of pound your chest or Maybe something. it's just more of like a clacking of claws. They can sort of like, reach their claws together, but it's like a, it's like, like a coffee house snap. Okay. Or like... Like the beat poet sort of, yeah. Yeah. But okay. So these these dinosaurs, they were taught their... The asteroid was a punishment for them taking their work too seriously. Yeah. That's what I think. Specializing too much. That'll mm-hmm. teach you to specialize. They should have met some manic pixie dream dinosaurs that would have <laughs> taught them to loosen up. And, yeah. yeah. They would have said, well, I'm listening to my headphones. Listen to this. This will change your life. <laughs> you ever heard of the dinosaur tunes? Have you ever heard of this very popular band? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> oh, God damn, Zach Braff. You got to grab me for making a mixtape. Sorry. That's, <laughs> that movie makes me so mad for so many reasons. <laughs> so, Beth, where can our listeners find out more about you and everything you do? Um, well, you can go to my Twitter, which is uh, Zabsters. You can go to my Instagram, which is that Zabeth. I also have a website, ZabethRussell.com, um, that has, you know, links to my IMDb and all of that stuff that's not really that fun for anyone, but it's there. <laughs> um, that's where you can find out more. Awesome. We will link Excellent. to all of those in the show notes and on the website. You can find us individually at Andy T. Wood at Matt Kirshen and collectively at Probably Science. You can email us probablyscience at gmail.com. You can also find us at Facebook slash Probably Science or just go to probablyscience.com and all the links are there. Uh, 
You can also, what's our HelloFresh code, Andy? Don't forget to go to HelloFresh.com and use the code PROBABLY30 to get $30 off your first week. HelloFresh.com and the code is PROBABLY30. Do that, people. It's easy. It's fun. You get good food out of it. I keep you from specializing too much. It yeah. will. Um, Different meals every time. Yeah. Cook it with your family so you don't become like those dinosaurs. <laughs> don't be like the dinosaurs. Don't be too successful. Just fast food. Just grab and go. No, no. Take some time. We will see you next week. Thanks, Beth. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye.